Well, I do want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. And we're going to continue our journey through this amazing gospel account as the Lord Jesus Christ continues to disciple all of us. Every disciple is a work in progress. It is the Lord's desire that all of us would continue to grow in our faith. And this is why one of the ministry pillars you'll see at our church is right up here before you, progressing in evangelism and discipleship. The Lord doesn't just save us, but he sanctifies us. He, he transforms us and he works in, in, in such a way in our lives that we'll continue to trust in him more and more and trust in ourselves less and less. The title of our message is Our Imperfect Faith. And perhaps it intrigues you. And as we're going to see in our study today, just because we place our faith in a perfect Savior doesn't mean that our faith is perfect. We get that, right? In fact, it's far from perfect. God continues to grow us in our faith, and our faith gets tested every single day. How is your faith imperfect? Is your faith in our Lord growing stronger? Do you find yourself trusting him more and more as you're walking with him each day? Or have you found yourself living in doubt? Living in a, a place of discouragement? How might today's passage encourage you and I to grow stronger in our faith. Let's tackle the text together to get some answers and begin by reading all 16 verses. Mark 9, verses 14 through 29 from the NASB reads as follows. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said to him, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand 
and raised him, and he got up. And when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Well, as you can see, we have our work cut out for us. And I did my best to outline this passage so that we can also apply a few principles uh, to our spiritual walks with the Lord. Our passage reveals two realities so that our imperfect faith will trust more completely in our perfect Savior. Let's get started for time's sake with the first point. The reality of unbelief should challenge us. And before we consider this reality, I think it would be good for us to make sure that we understand what we're talking about here when the, the point mentions unbelief, or when we see unbelief in our passage. Unbelief has two different aspects, and they're both important to understand. To understand. First, unbelief can be associated with the sin of rejecting God. And secondly, it can be associated with the sin of doubting God or not trusting God. Listen to how William Grinnell describes unbelief before I expand on it. Unbelief is the prince of sins, the first poisonous breath which Eve sucked in from the tempter was sent in these words. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Referencing Genesis 3.1. As if he had said, consider well on the matter. Do you believe God meant so? Can you think so ill of God as to believe he would keep the best fruit of the whole garden from you? This was the traitor's gate at which all other sins entered into her heart. And it continues to this day of the same use to Satan for the hurrying souls into other sins, called therefore an evil heart of unbelief, rejecting the living God. William Gurnall, has, um, I appreciate his explanation because he really features both aspects for us. The scribes, for example, are guilty of unbelief. They're guilty of the sin of rejecting Christ. Okay? That's the first aspect. Believers, on the other hand, though we have trusted in Christ completely, we can still be guilty of unbelief or doubting God. We see an example of this firsthand in our passage today when the boy's father cries out in verse 24. He says, what? I do believe. I do believe. Help my unbelief. What is he ultimately saying? I do trust. I, I do have faith. I do have faith in you. But help my doubt. Help me where I lack faith. And can't those of us who believe relate to this so well, right? Aren't there times where we do lack faith, where we, we do doubt, where we try to take measures into our own hands, or we're tempted to think how that somehow God's will, this, this shouldn't be happening, this shouldn't be taking place, or this isn't how things should be working out. We're going to dig into this some more when we get to that verse, but let's make sure that we first have a grasp on the context where this passage is found in our, our progression in Mark. 
Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, have just returned and come down from the transfiguration on Mount Hermon. And this is why verse 14 says, they came back to the other disciples. The other nine disciples who didn't have the privilege of going and witnessing the transfiguration, they continued on in the ministry. When Jesus returns, he finds them facing some difficult circumstances, but this was all a part of the Lord's plan. Jesus is preparing his disciples for ministry without his physical presence. In less than a year's time, Jesus is going to be nailed to the cross. His, His physical time with them is coming to a close, and so he's preparing them for the road ahead. His impending death continues to be something that he's getting them ready for. And if you'll recall, Jesus mentions his death right after Peter made his confession in Mark 8.31. He mentioned it again when he was coming down from the transfiguration in Mark 9.9. And he's going to mention it a third time in our very next passage in Mark 9.30. And so he keeps on telling them about his death that's going to take place. And why does he keep doing that? Mark 9.32 gives us the answer. They did not understand, and they were afraid to ask him. Verses 14 through 18 help us to see the makeup of this unbelieving crowd, and I listed them in your outline for you. We have the doubting disciples, the skeptical scribes, the desperate dad, and the demonized boy. Of course, there were also a number of undisclosed bystanders, and verse 14 shares that it was a large crowd. We get this. After two plus years of ministry, the Lord is just continuing to grow in popularity. So the crowds, which were smaller at the beginning, they they, they only continue to, to grow. And these massive crowds keep showing up from many different regions. When the crowds see them in verse 15, it says that they were amazed. Some have suggested that when Jesus came down from the transfiguration, like Moses, when Moses was up there, you'll recall he came down that there was, the the glory had had shone on his face, right? And something looked different. But that doesn't, they're, they're amazed to see Jesus because he showed up in the perfect timing. It's not because of the transfiguration, because that would go against the very counsel that he gave to Um, to the disciples back in verse 9, not to tell anyone about the experience. Mixed in this large crowd are the skeptical scribes, and by this time, they're having a heyday with the disciples. Why? Because they're they're witnessing their ineffectiveness. They're, They're seeing that they cannot cast out this demon. And so not only do the scribes um, and their unbelief does it continue to reject Jesus as the Messiah, but there's probably some mockery taking place as his disciples are unable to cast out the demon. Jesus, we know, was always successful in casting out every demon. He cast out legions of demons. But for the scribes to see his disciples failing, we can be certain gave them some measure of satisfaction. Some have tried to find an analogy here between what Moses found when he came down the mountain in Exodus 32 with what Jesus finds when he comes down the mountain after the transfiguration. The scribes are thought to have uh, taken the place of the rebellious Israelites, but 
a closer look helps us to see that this is really a stretch and it's, it's reading into the text. There is a parallel of unbelief that, that both Jesus and Moses found when they came down. But when we look at the situations, they're actually quite different. Moses found gross immorality as the people had taken um, and accumulated all their gold and fashioned it into this golden calf that they were, they were worshiping. Jesus, when he comes down, he basically finds the disciples failing uh, to, to exercise or, or cast out a demon. And so the, they're, they're radically different circumstances. Luke's account tells us that this was the dad's only son. And later in the account, the dad shares with Jesus that his son has been suffering attacks from this demon since childhood. I've mentioned this before, but any parent in the room, when you see your, your child suffering, it, it brings us to a point of desperation. And we, we would do just about anything to alleviate that suffering. And so this man's hope, as he's come to the disciples now, he's asked them to cast out this demon that his boy's been struggling with since his childhood. His, his hope is dwindling. It's fading quickly. What should warrant most of our attention is the doubting disciples. We know that they have confessed faith in Christ clearly as Messiah. But why is it that they cannot cast out this demon? They can't do it. And they've successfully been able to cast out other demons in the past. We've, we've read and study passages already that help, have helped us to see that. Matthew's account gives us some insight. When Jesus shares in the parallel account in Matthew 17 that it's because they lacked faith. Unbelief had begun to creep into their thinking. The disciples had been casting out demons and probably got a bit proud that they could do this on their own. And so what happens? They stop trusting God. They think somehow, you know, the power trip starts and, you know, I, I can do this. I can handle this situation, right? How quickly we can grow so independent, right? Even when the Lord blesses us, even when it's his giftedness, even when he pours out his blessing on our lives, we can, uh, isn't it the tendency of our hearts to take ownership of it? That's what happened. They were doubting their need for Jesus. Do you know why many swimmers who drowned at the beach suffer that fate? Let me use this as an illustration. Do you know why most swimmers drown at the beach and suffer that fate? I'll tell you, and the answer is going to surprise you. It's because of their pride. Did you know that? And I'm talking about advanced swimmers. I'm talking about people who've been swimming for, for a long time. Because even the strongest swimmer, can get pulled from, a, from a, an aggressive riptide that, that can pull them out and prevent them from ever making it back to, to the land. The strongest of swimmers. And it happens. And you know what they do? Do they yell out for the lifeguard? Do they cry out and to somebody who might be able to hear them and say, hey, I need help? No, they do what? They try to make it back in their own strength 
And they try to swim against that riptide. And you know what happens? They exhaust themselves. They absolutely exhaust themselves. I can't cry. I'm an advanced swimmer. I can't cry out to a lifeguard. I'm not gonna, I've been swimming for years. I'm not crying out to a lifeguard. And what happens? They exhaust themselves. And by the time, they, by the time they, they, they realize the, the desperation of their situation, when, when it's time to, to, to call out, they have no energy left. And you know what happens? They drown. They drowned. They drowned. And lifeguards at the beach are actually trained. You always see them out there looking, right? You see them out surveying the water. And you think, well, sure, they're keeping an eye on all those kids that are playing right there on the shoreline. Yeah, they are. That's part of the description. But believe it or not, their greater concern is the people who are out there who are swimming where the current can actually pull them out further and further. And so they're trained. They have an eye to, to be on the lookout, they have an eye to be on the lookout. And what spiritual picture this provides for us. Jesus Christ is our spiritual lifeguard. Not only does he rescue us in salvation, but the Lord Jesus Christ rescues us in our sanctification. And the reality of unbelief should challenge you, should challenge me. Unbelief and doubt tempts you and I to take our eyes off Christ. Unbelief and doubt tempts you to take matters into your own hands. When faith calls us to what? Hebrews 12, to, to fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's perfecting our faith. Why? Because it's an imperfect faith. It's an imperfect faith. And this is why 1 Peter 4.11 reminds us whoever serves is to serve in the strength that he supplies. And then there's a purpose clause that comes in, in 1 Peter 4.11. So that, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ who uh, to whom belongs all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's it. That's the doxology that comes as a result of us recognizing that it's not our strength, right? Yeah, we work in congruency with God's will, but as it relates to, to, to the, the, the ministry in our lives and being effective, we can't lose sight of the fact that it's the Lord's strength. And this is why Ephesians 6.10 calls you and I to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might whenever we face temptation. And this just isn't found in a couple of verses. You need to know this. This is woven into the fabric of scripture. When Paul wrote the, the, the Corinthians, he wrote, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, be strong. When he wrote the Colossians, Paul shared that he was praying that they would be strengthened with all power according to the Lord's glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness, all immovability in faith, all, all soundness, right? Do you ever feel overwhelmed by your circumstances? Or am I the only one? <laughs> we do. We do. Do you ever feel like you're drowning in the sea of life? 
Sometimes work is overwhelming. Sometimes parenting is overwhelming. Sometimes school is overwhelming. Sometimes broken relationships and broken uh, uh, friendships are, are overwhelming. What is the reason for this? And how is it that the scriptures can command us to consider it all joy when you and I encounter these various trials? It's because the scriptures point us to Christ. They point us to his strength. They point us to the spiritual lifeguard who can and will come to our rescue when our hearts are overwhelmed, when we are doubting. He can help us to persevere when the riptide of a struggling marriage is working against us. When the riptide of cancer is trying to pull us down. When the riptide of any health issue, any terminal illness, any struggle. Here's one for you. How about the riptide of a demonized boy who has spent his entire life being tormented? Wow. God's word points us to faith and trust in the Lord and the strength that he supplies through faith. The reality of unbelief should challenge us. And it, and, and it can also help us to understand the Lord's rebuke that we see here to the unbelieving. Look again at verse 19. This, this is our second sub-point. Jesus replies, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And you might look at this response initially, and you're just like, man, this doesn't seem, doesn't seem very gracious. Doesn't seem very loving. Let me tell you why. This is an exasperated response. We've talked about this before. That is, Jesus could look out and survey the lay of the land, and he could see unbelieving hearts. There were varying degrees of unbelief. And what troubled him so much is these scribes are on the scene. As these doubters are on the scene, he can see into the heart and he can see just how hard and compacted their hearts are. And that's why he responds the way that he does. Oh, unbelieving generation. And this rebuke is directed primarily at the unbelieving scribes and the generation of unbelieving Israel. James Edwards shares this insight. The unbelieving generation is a reference to the crowd apart from the disciples. For the Greek word genia, translated generation, occurs five times in Mark. Mark 8.12 twice, Mark 8.38, 9.19, and 13.30. But never with reference to the disciples. Even though the disciples are sufficient for the task of insufficient for the task of healing the demon-possessed boy, Jesus does not chastise them. Inability is simply a limitation, not a fault, as are hardness of heart and misunderstanding. The crowd is included in the latter, however. How reminiscent is Jesus' lament of the prophetic grievances against unbelieving Israel? And you can look back in the Old Testament, those of us familiar with the, the passages he lists some of them. Deuteronomy 32.5, Numbers 14.11, Isaiah 65.2. Uh, 
What is Edwards ultimately saying? This is a chastising comment and rebuke that's coming from the Lord because of the unbelief of, of the scribes and the hardness of heart of those who were in the crowd. Israelites, the generation of Israelites, which included the scribes and the Pharisees and leaders of Israel, along with unbelieving Gentiles that make up the hard-hearted mixed crowds. I would differ with Edwards here just a little bit. I do believe that his, his rebuke does have an impact on the disciples because they're hearing the Lord share this. And, and he, he's, um, he's, he's sharing uh, this rebuke in their presence, right? So they can hear it. I would liken it to this, like a, a parent, if you were to uh, rebuke one of your unbelieving children in the presence of one of your believing children, right? You give them a, a, a rebuke and you let them know, hey, this is, this, this is not right. That has an impact on that believing child, right? That still points them back to their, their need to be faithful, their need to be believing as well. And that's what's going on here. Now, despite all of the unbelief and all the doubt that surrounds our Lord in this situation, there's something that should really capture our attention, which brings us to our third sub-point, the Lord's compassion to the unbelieving. Notice what the Lord doesn't do. Well, if you guys are going to respond this way, I'm out of here. We don't see, we don't see evidence of that. Even in the midst of his rebuke, we see his compassion prevail when he asked them to bring the boy to him at the end of verse 19. Now notice what takes place starting in verse 20. And I'm going to add some commentary as I, I read this. Verse 20 says, They brought the boy to Jesus when he saw him, and he here refers to the little boy being controlled by the Spirit. Immediately the Spirit threw the boy into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? Stop here for a moment. Does Jesus know how long this has been happening? Of course he does. What's the purpose? Why does he ask him? Specifically, I believe that, that, that he wanted the man to look at him. He, the, the Lord is ministering to him. The Lord is having compassion on him. He wanted him to, to look at him and he wanted him to see his compassion firsthand. And the father responded from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Stop here for a moment. In the ancient Near East, both water and fire were very common. Fire was used not only as the primary heating source, especially at night when it would be cold, but it was used to cook it was used like we use it today to burn up trash and throw things away. A lot of things that fire was used for, and so it was around all the time. You used to shape iron. They, they, they used it for a lot of things, right? Boiling water for coffee. You can be certain of that. Um, but, but it was used a lot. And then also water supplies. Typically, communities and villages set up in areas where there was access to a lake 
or to at least some water source. Otherwise, people would have to travel so far to go get water and come back. So they would oftentimes just build, up a bit, build the village, set up camp. Families would set up camp basically right near the water. And so it was everywhere. There was always access. And so this demon takes this boy and is constantly throwing him into these fires, right? The parents are, are standing guard. And this is what the father responds at the, at the end of verse 22. But if you can do anything, take pity on us, help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. R. Kent Hughes writes, think how the father felt seeing his maimed burnt son wallowing in the dirt, staring up with an unearthly look through terror-filled eyes because of his convulsions. He could not even talk or hear. How that father hurt. But also think about how Jesus felt. He cared as no one else ever cared. And the father could see it in his eyes. There never has been compassion like that of Jesus. This divine compassion is what drew out the father's desperate cry. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. His plea was the annex to faith, end quote. And here we come to the pinnacle of the passage. The great divide from the journey of unbelief to belief occurs right before our eyes. And I want you to notice who is standing in the gap. Jesus Christ is the bridge that every soul must cross to come to faith, amen? Right? It is he, he is the one who stands in the gap. And Jesus, I believe, asked the Father how long this was happening. And, and again, this was, to, this, th th this was a moment, right? This was a ministry moment where as I step into the story, and I, can't, I don't know this for certainty, but I picture Jesus just ministering directly to him and asking him the question, how long has this been going on? And the father just wanting to share his heart. I don't know when the father, maybe, I, I'm inclined to think that the father, when he looked at Jesus, right? He, maybe the Lord unveiled himself in that moment. I don't know. All I know is that something happened here. We see a transition. The man's heart. He, he goes from the reality of unbelief to the reality of belief. And it's a belief that comforts us, which is the second point of our sermon. The Father's humble plea in verse 24 is going to help us see this reality more clearly and the comfort that it brings. The verse reads, Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And at first statement, anyone reading that would say, this seems like a statement of contradiction, doesn't it? I do believe. Help my unbelief. What's being said there? There's a great deal of comfort in this verse for us. The word believe here, which is pistio in the Greek, it's the, it's the verb form of the word faith, pistos. He is saying, I believe, I trust, I put my faith in you. But his second exclamation acknowledges his own recognition of his faith's weakness. Thus, he is also saying, help my unbelief, help my doubt. It's an imperfect faith. It's an imperfect faith 
in a perfect Savior. Do we believe in trusting Christ? Yes. Yes. Would you say that you believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation with all of your heart? Those of us who are in the faith, we would cry out and say yes. But what we also say is there a time where we lack faith and we do doubt and we are uncertain and it does creep in and it can tempt us. And I didn't share this earlier, but I want to share it now because uh, Ben Liao, you can go back to our equipping hour. He did teach on doubt and, and we talked about this. The temptation to doubt is not sin, but acting on doubt, right? And not trusting God, that is sin. That is sin. We have an imperfect faith. And this drives at the heart of this sermon. And it's, it's entitled, Our Imperfect Faith. So how can our faith be strengthened? What encouragement and practical guidance would the Lord have us take away from this passage? We're staying connected to the second point. How can the reality of belief comfort us? We need to see two final things in this passage that will allow our faith to be strengthened. First, we need to understand the end of the Father's humble plea when he says, help my unbelief. And second, we need to see the significance of our Lord's faithful answer in these final verses. Let's start with help my unbelief. The word translated help here is boetheo in the Greek. And it's also used in Hebrews 2.18 when speaking, with, speaking of Christ. So if you have a Bible, keep your finger right there in Mark 9. But I want you to see this and flip uh, uh, towards the back of your Bible to Hebrews 2.18. Okay. Hebrews 2.18 says this. And if you write in your Bible, this is a great verse to underline. Electronic age, I guess you just highlight in bold, I guess. <laughs> Hebrews 2.18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able, now listen, to help those who are being tempted. Exact same Greek word as used in, in, in Mark 9, right there. Help my unbelief, right there. And where does, our, where does our help come from? This word, it means to come to aid or assist. We know it comes from the Lord. What can he help with? Our Lord can help us when we're tempted to doubt, when we're tempted to distrust. Jesus Christ is the center and the reason for our faith. And man, did the, 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 this father call upon the right person to help him when he was tempted to doubt. Jesus stands ready and waiting to help all who believe to call upon him when doubt creeps in. When you're overwhelmed, when you don't think you're going to make it. Are you uncertain about how it's going to work out? Will you trust God? I can look around and see people in this room that we have prayed for and seen God's hand on their life. It's remarkable. Blanche, I can see your life sustained by the Lord as you as you've battled your cancer. And how the doctors have been amazed how it's even shrunk in stage four. 
the West, I can look at you and go back all the way to the time where you were going to fly to China and uncertain how the whole thing was going to unfold with adopting your son, TJ, who is here with us right now, who's a part of your family, who's, who's blended in, who's, who's, who's been so well-received and so well-loved. Why? Because we cried out. We cried out to the Lord. He said, help us. And he has. And he does. Do you cry out to him for help? Listen, maybe you're someone here today, if you're an unbeliever, you need to get right with the Lord. You need to trust completely in Christ. That's first and foremost. You need to make sure that you're all in for the Lord Jesus Christ, that you realize that you're a sinner, that you are on uh, the road to be eternally separated from God. You need to trust in Christ completely today for salvation. That's the first form of unbelief that needs to be dealt with. But for believers, the second form that needs to be dealt with is our doubt. And maybe you're, maybe you're weak. Maybe you're, you're not crying out to the Lord like you should when you get in overhead. I, he's there. Psalm 46.1 says this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Do we cry out to him right away? Or are we like the proud swimmer at the beach facing the dangerous riptides of life? And do we try to see how far we can swim in our own strength? And then, then I'll cry out, God. Then I'll ask for help. I'll share confessions of a pastor even in the sermon as I was preparing even for this message and wrestling with this this massive text and trying to understand it and one of the things that um, has to take shape eventually over the course of study is that you have to outline the, the passage, right? You have to um, make it palatable and, and, and so that it can be served and promote understanding on a Sunday. And there are times where I'm trying to outline the, the passage, and this week was one of the times trying to, to, trying to get my arms around it, and, and, and I couldn't do it. And I was getting frustrated. And sometimes, you guys don't see this, I'm the only one here in the office. But th- there, there have been times where I've been studying and then you, you think you got an outline and then all of a sudden it doesn't, something doesn't line up and then all of a sudden you start forcing your outline on the text and you're like, that's not honoring God's word. So you have to rewind the tape and go back to the drawing board. How, how do we do this? And this is why I appreciate, James, I appreciate you and the prayer ministry team and the other people who pray for me during the week. I need your prayers. I covet your prayers. Why? Because there's times where I get in the office like I was this week and I'm literally punching the air like this. Why? No, I mean, I get to that point. And then, and then I'm like, I look at myself and I'm like, Pastor John, what are you doing? And the Lord brings me back, right? He brings me back to that place where I'm trying to do it in my own strength. I'm trying in my own ingenuity. I'm trying to make it work. And he says, no, no, son. I'm your help. I'm present. And I stop and I pray, or I send a text to my wife. I ask her to pray. Other people post prayer requests for me online. It's just really a blessing in the ministry to me. And the Lord answers. He does. 
he answers. Well, there's a second way that your faith can be strengthened that we see at the end of our passage featured in our final subpoint. How did Jesus answer the Father's plea for help? How would he help his unbelief? Verses 25 through 27 reveal our Lord's faithful answer to him. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And Jesus commanding the spirit to never enter back into him again is very significant here. And those who are familiar with the Lord's teachings in, in Matthew 12, go back to that passage where he talks about where a spirit can actually return, right? With, with seven more spirits, right? And the situation can even become worse. But the Lord says, no, that's not gonna happen. You've been and had permission to, to and, and been permitted to come back. And it's not, you're not coming back again. Verse 26, after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. And, and we can't tell, and I, even from the Greek, we don't know, was he dead? Could he have been dead? Could have. We could have had two miracles here, for all we know. But there's nothing in the text that we can know for certain the demon, in a final fit of rage, tried to inflict as much damage as possible before leaving, right? Just tried to, one last time. But Jesus, verse 27, took him by the hand and raised him up, and he got up. You know, I can't even imagine for a moment what that must have been like for that father and that son. For that demon to be gone, for his tongue to be loose, for him able to speak, for him to, for his father not to have to worry. I mean, you think about, you know, we don't, there's no mention of a mother, but it was probably a 24-hour thing where they had to keep an eye. And you know what? I don't think mom's in the story. I think she's at home sleeping because she was on night watch the night before, <laughs> probably, you know, staying up all night to watch him. Why? Because there was this temptation at any point in time, it could be pulled into a fire or pulled out into water or being thrashed. I don't know what trials the Lord has brought into your life and I don't know exactly how you've been tempted to doubt. Yet I do know that you and I can take great comfort in how Jesus has answered prayers time and time again. And he's put his faithfulness on display for us to see. And this is just one example of many when, the, when servants of the Lord have cried out in faith. And we see it throughout the Psalms, don't we? David, right? Enemies all around him, how the Lord just time and time again delivered him. Those are there for us. Faith is comforted by the word of God, but unbelief questions the certainty of it. Faith will give comfort in the midst of fears, but unbelief causes fears even in the midst of comforts. Faith comforts us by making great burdens light, but unbelief makes even light burdens intolerably heavy. By faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob possessed the land of promise, but because of unbelief, 
Neither Aaron nor Moses nor Miriam could enter. By faith, the children of Israel passed through the Red Sea. But by unbelief, many perished in the wilderness. By faith, Gideon did more with 300 men and a few empty pitchers than all 12 tribes could do because they lacked faith. By faith, Peter walked on the water, but unbelief caused him to sink. And I remember when we studied that passage here in Mark, how that just was an additional reminder, right? When we do take our focus off the Lord, that's where doubt comes in. That's where doubt comes in. Well, let us see our Lord's faithful answer to the disciples before we close. Verse 28 says, When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. The, the disciples had regularly seen the Lord Jesus Christ out praying for ministry, praying for them, praying for God's work to be done. They would need to be dependent upon the Lord in prayer to accomplish the work of the ministry. And you know what happens here? In, in, in a strange twist of irony, and I, 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 was, I was really felt like I was blessed to see this, in a strange twist of irony, right? The man who they could not help is, is the one who would help the disciples understand what they needed to do in order to be effective in the ministry. He was the one who cried out to the Lord in prayer and said, help my unbelief. And as the Lord would have them go out, this would be a lesson that they would, ever, they would forever take with them as a reminder that they would need to be praying in the same way. And we've, we, we, we've, we've seen the exhortation to pray clearly from this passage. Prayer is the key that unlocks the chamber of doubt. Prayer is the key that unlocks the chamber of doubt. And how can our imperfect faith be strengthened? What encouragement, what practical guidance? We've seen it so clearly in this passage. Pray to God with fervency and frequency. Don't wait until you're drowning in the sea of life to call out to him. Pray throughout the day. Make it a priority to include him and walk with him during your day. Take time to pray. Team up with someone to pray. Care groups are starting again soon and not a minute too soon that we'd have the opportunities again to, to have weekly times to pray with brothers and sisters. Number two, cling to the examples of God's faithful answers to the prayers of his people who have cried out to him in faith. Read God's word and see firsthand how he delivers those who trust in him time and time again. Yes, we'll be tempted to doubt at times because our faith on this side of the cross is an imperfect faith. But we will continue to fight and keep our focus on our perfect Savior. And without question, our hearts can and will be encouraged. And our faith will continue to be strengthened. Allow me to close with a quote from Spurgeon that reflects these realities. He writes, But it is not just in the same way that we doubt God's help. Is it not mistrust without a cause? Have we ever had the shadow of reason to doubt our Father's goodness? Have not his loving kindnesses been marvelous? Has he once failed to justify our trust? Oh no. Our God has not left us at any time. 
We have had dark nights, but the star of love has shone, shone forth amid the blackness. We have been in stern conflicts, but over our head he has held aloft the shield of our defense. We have gone through many trials, but never to our detriment, always to our advantage. And the conclusion from our past experience is that he who has been with us in six troubles will not forsake us in the seventh. What we have known of our faithful God proves that he will keep us to the end. Let us not then reason contrary to evidence. How can we ever be so ungenerous as to doubt our God? Lord, throw down the Jezebel of our unbelief and let the dogs devour it. <laughs> and all God's people said, amen, amen. Throw down the Jezebel of our unbelief. Listen, the Lord wants you to trust him. And, he, and I can say this with full confidence. He wants you to trust him more today than you ever have before in your life. And you know what? Tomorrow, as he grows you in your imperfect faith, he wants you to trust him even more, even more. How is that going to happen? It's going to, your prayer life is a gauge of how you trust. I'm just telling you straight up, that's conviction to my own heart. I don't pray as I should, and, and I want to I, I grow in that area. I don't know all the testimonies of what scriptures and the promises, but I want to grow in that area. I want to study it. All right, may we do that together as a church family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a very full passage. Wow, my heart is swelling just full of the richness of what you've allowed us to see in your word. I pray, Father, that you would continue to capture our hearts with these realities. Help us, Father, to um, see the, the failure of unbelief, the danger in, of unbelief, of trying to do things in our own strength, in our own might. Help us, Father, as we study for our classes in school to pray to you and ask you for strength. Help us, Father, as we minister to coworkers and, and, and try to love those who are impatient or unkind to us. Help us to cry out to you for strength. Father, help us in our marriages and with our families to be patient with one another and, and to be spirit-led and to make ourselves servants of our moms and dads, servants of our brothers and sisters, servants of our children so that we can be a blessing to each other. That is what you desire for us. And unbelief is going to creep in and, and threaten that and tell us that's not what you want. All life is ministry. We're either ministering to our own hearts through prayer and through your word or we're ministering to the hearts of others. It never changes. All life is ministry. Help us, Father, to walk by faith. It is so true, a verse that we didn't even mention. We do walk by faith, not by sight, but we can trust you because you see all things and you know what's coming. You know what's best for us and we can trust you. Help us to walk in faithfulness to you this week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.